This episode of the Sex and Psychology Podcast is brought to you by Promescent. Our friends at Promescent have everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. It has target zone technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. When used as directed, it won't transfer to your partner. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and why more than 2,000 medical professionals recommend it. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants, including water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders, free shipping on orders over $10, and all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Sheff, a sociologist and certified sexuality educator who teaches at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. Dr. Sheff's research focuses on gender and sexual minority families, consensual non-monogamy, as well as kink and BDSM, and she is the foremost academic expert on polyamorous families with children. In fact, her polyamorous family study, which spans more than two decades, is the only longitudinal study of poly families with children to date. Today, we're going to be talking about consensual non-monogamy, with particular emphasis on polyamory. We're going to talk about how common polyamory is, things that people tend to get wrong about it, some of the unique advantages and challenges that polyamorous individuals and families face, as well as how to know whether polyamory or another form of consensual non-monogamy might be right for you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Elizabeth, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I am pleased to have you here to talk about your work and research. I wish we could do this in person, but of course, due to current circumstances, that's a little bit challenging. But at any rate, I am so happy to have you here to talk about polyamory, which is a subject that I think a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about, and we're going to correct some of those misconceptions today. But before we get into that, let me start by asking you to tell my listeners a little bit about your professional background and what it is that you do, because you wear a lot of hats. You're an educator, a researcher, an author. You have a consulting business. You do expert witness work, which is a topic I want to dive into a little bit later, because I also do a bit of work in that area and find it to be fascinating. But one of the common threads through all the work you do is that it centers around people with diverse sexual and relationship interests. So what prompted your interest in these topics in the first place? How did you come to be an expert in this area? Um, I would say that initially I started studying it because I intellectualized things that frightened me. And I had fallen in love with someone who did not want to be monogamous. And this is before I think the um, term polyamory was very widely known. It had been invented, but people didn't really know it. Um, So early 90s. I would say. And he and I were talking about it and I was in graduate school and I found this group of people practicing exactly what he wanted to do and approached them not originally as a research area, but more so um, to find out how they did it comfortably. Because when when I heard from him that he wanted non-monogamy, the way that landed with me or how I interpreted that was I was too fat and bad in bed. And so he didn't really want me. He wanted, you know, he was kind of hanging out with me until he found someone better. And he kept saying, no, no, that's not it. Pretty much whoever he was with, he would always be interested in new people. And it wasn't a lack on my part. And I mean, I could hear that from him, but hearing it then from other people 
in other relationships gave me a completely different sense of it, I guess, helped me to depersonalize it. And after hanging out in, you know, polyamorous settings for probably a year or two, maybe, it occurred to me what an interesting thing it would be to study. And because I was getting a PhD in sociology, I just asked those folks, hey, do you mind if I interview you about it for this ethnography class I'm taking with Dr. Patricia Adler, who is a giant in the field of ethnography. And they were like, yeah, sure. And then I took that and turned it into a dissertation and took that dissertation and turned it into a longitudinal study. You know, once I heard from so many people how interested they were in the topic, I was like, oh, I'm going to follow up on this. So when you first started studying this, you, you had a personal interest that sort of drew you to it. But um was there much research at the time at all on polyamory or was this really just kind of uncharted territory back then? The only other researchers who were actively working at the time, I didn't even know about them until later. We were all separated by continents. There was Meg Barker in the UK and Maria Pallotta-Tiaroli in Australia, but none of us knew about each other yet at that point. So I thought, no one had ever done research on polyamory. People had certainly done research on swinging and open relationships. There was a lot of research on swinging in the 70s and 80s until the HIV epidemic shut it down. Um, not swinging, which continued, but research on it became untenable in a way. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely at the time, was the only academic in the United States studying it. And in fact, got quite a bit of pushback around that. People saying, you know, no one has studied this because it's not an appropriate topic. You should not be studying this. This is not something anyone should want to know more about. We should just hope it goes away. I got that from several different faculties. So in terms of my career, Studying it, how and when I did, was the kiss of death for me in academia. I have had a very rocky relationship with academia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, your story highlights a couple of important things. One is just how new and how recent our scientific knowledge of polyamory really is. Polyamory is not a new concept been around, but there really hasn't been that much research on it until recently and still even today. There's not a whole lot of work in part because it can be a somewhat dicey topic to study, especially if you're, say, in graduate school or you're an early career faculty member. You're often discouraged from studying so-called risky topics because it can potentially give your career that gives of death that you were talking about because people will see it as research that isn't fundable and they might see it as making it harder for you to get a job or to get a promotion or to get tenure. And so I think a lot of academics can relate to that. I know a lot of graduate students and early career faculty members who are frustrated because they have topics like polyamory that they want to study, but they've sort of been told that they're not allowed to study it. Yes, it can be incredibly difficult to build a committee, especially a knowledgeable and supportive committee, if you want to study polyamory or BDSM or asexuality, you know, kind of anything that's off the beaten trail in terms of gender and sexuality. And I have to say, this is now after decades of people working hard to establish an institutional home for sexuality. I mean, Justin, I know you're at the Kinsey Institute. Kinsey was very famously hounded to death about his research. So he paid a huge price for you and I to be able to study this now. And so this is kind of the kinder, friendlier version of academia, even towards sexuality. And it's still very difficult. Yeah, we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. So 
Let's talk a little bit more specifically about polyamory. So as an expert on the subject, polyamory, what does that term really mean scientifically? I would say that polyamory is a form of consensual non-monogamy that emphasizes long-term emotional intimacy among adults and Sometimes that includes sexuality. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, People form kind of relationship networks that sometimes they call polycules, kind of like an extended family. And generally within the polycule, some people are having sex with each other, but other people are not. But they're emotionally close and have relationships with people that do have sexual relationships. So those kind of emotionally close non-sexual relationships um, have turned out to be so important to polyamorous families that I decided to make up a word for them so I could describe them. So I made up the word polyaffective to describe those emotional relationships. And I was inspired to do that by polyamorous people who make up words for things all the time that are lacking in regular language. So for instance, they made up the word compersion to describe a feeling of joy at your partner hooking up with someone else. They made up the word metamor to describe your partner's partner that you are not hooked up with, but you know via your partner, your romantic partner. Well, thank you for the polyamory vocabulary lesson. (laughs) I do hear these terms frequently, but I think they're probably unfamiliar to a lot of people. You know, I think even among scientists and researchers who study relationships, like many of them don't have an understanding of this vocabulary either. And so that actually poses a challenge when it comes to conducting research on polyamory is that they might not know the right questions to ask or how to phrase them or frame them so that they're understood by their their target populations. But I think you gave a, a really good description of what polyamory is. It's a it's a form of consensual non-monogamy, and it tends to be considered distinct from other forms of consensual non-monogamy, such as swinging, which you mentioned, which often takes the form of partner swapping. So maybe couples, for example, might swap partners for an evening or at a party. It's also distinct from what we call open relationships, where there's usually one primary partner that an individual has, but they have some freedom or flexibility to have other sexual connections within some mutually agreed upon rule set. So in the world of consensual non-monogamy, there are a lot of different forms with polyamory being the one we're focusing on here today. So how many people are polyamorous? What do we know about the prevalence of this relationship style? You know, I have to say, is so much more prevalent than I had anticipated. It blows my mind how common it is. When I started studying it, I really got the impression that it was this kind of small fringe element of society. But more recent quantitative research indicates that fully 20% of the people in the United States have experience with consensual non-monogamy. One-fifth. It blows my mind still of people in the U.S. have had a threesome or ongoing polyamorous relationships or a little fling or something like that. And in terms of longer term or people who identify more as a consensually non-monogamous person, that is 5% of the population. So that is bigger than the LGBTQ population combined. But that last statistic is a little misleading because of that 5%. Many are LGBTQ. In other words, consensual non-monogamy is more common among LGBTQ people than it is among purely heterosexual people. Although lots of purely heterosexual people are also interested in consensual non-monogamy the rates of CNM are higher among LGBTQ folks. 
Yeah, and that all lines up with what I've seen in my own research and in the broader literature as well. And I wanted to mention there's also a nationally representative Canadian study that I believe came out last year finding the same results that they did in the U.S. where one in five adults said that they had been in some type of sexually open relationship before. Uh, I, I should point out that it's difficult for us to say precisely how many people are specifically polyamorous because in these surveys, they asked about consensual non-monogamy more broadly. And so we really need representative studies that can kind of break that down and explore the, the prevalence and frequency of specific types of consensual non-monogamy, such as polyamory. So we know that, you know, about one in five adults say that they've been in some type of consensually non-monogamous relationship before, but I'd really love to see the stats on specific types of consensually non-monogamous relationships. Me too. So let's bust some common myths about polyamory. In your experience as an educator and maybe even as an expert witness, what are some of the common things that people seem to get wrong about it? And what do they need to know instead? I would say I encounter three primary myths. One, that polyamory is all about men having multiple partners and the women are kind of serving them. And sure, that may be the case in some polyamorous relationships. I'm not saying it never happens. But in the mainstream polyamorous community, women have a lot of power. Women find it a little easier to get partners than men and transgender folks. Women are a frequently sought partner. Many of the community leaders across time have been women. Many of the important founders like Brian Meering and Deborah Annapol were women, are women. And many of the contemporary leaders are women. And many of the academics who study polyamory are women, not all of us. But women have a lot of power in the setting and they certainly are not overall just serving men. That's a big one. Secondly, I would say many people think that it's all about the sex and don't think that much about the relating aspect. Instead, they kind of imagine it as this constant orgy. And I would say, at least in my research, I've found that while people may be interested in sex and may have higher sex drives and higher sexual frequency, they really put a lot more effort, attention, and energy into the relationship aspect, not only with their sexual partners, but with their partner's partners. Because over time, that's what makes a polycule work. In my research, it looks like the polyamorous families where the metamors are supportive of each other and have a positive relationship that polyaffective relationship is the key to a long-term, happy, resilient family. And that if the metamors hate each other, it's going to be hard to sustain that family over time. So while sex may be fun and it certainly makes great headlines, it's the emotional component of the relationships that is actually a much bigger deal in the long run. And third, I would say, is that polyamorous families are bad for kids. And people say that without really knowing anything about the polyamorous families. It seems like very much a knee-jerk reaction to, oh, these families are different, so they must be bad. And in fact, it's precisely the reaction that gay parents have faced for the past 30 years. And research on gay parents and kids that grow up in gay families finds that the kids in gay families are doing fine. They are no more problematic than children from heterosexual families. And in fact, most gay people are born into heterosexual families. And so this idea that, you know, gay families must be the cause of gayness in society is completely outlandish and comes from a root of thinking there's something wrong with being gay, which I absolutely disagree with. And research indicates that gay people 
other than we enjoy our partners of a similar gender, we are not that much different from other people. So that kind of underlying assumption that if you're gay, you must be malfunctioning and you will make your children malfunction. Or if you're polyamorous, you must be malfunctioning and you will make your children malfunction. It just has proved completely unfounded. Children in polyamorous families are doing great in part because, at least in my sample, they have race and class privilege. A lot of them are coming from fairly highly educated families that are middle class, that have race privilege in the United States goes a really long way towards making your life easier. So if you have white, highly educated, middle-class parents, then it's really not that much of a surprise if you're doing good in your life. You're starting out with social benefits. But then add on top of that, all of the social and emotional and relationship skills these kids learn from their families and the practical benefits of having multiple adults as sources of emotional and financial support. And just to get a ride, the tweens mentioned that a lot, getting a ride from someone. The kids are often better than their peers in terms of emotional stability, relationship skills, outlook on life. Whether or not the children themselves become polyamorous, they look back on their polyamorous upbringing and feel it really benefited them quite a bit, what they learned. Not that it was without complication, you know, of course they experienced stigma from others and, you know, irritation with the complexity of their families and, you know, things that other families experience too. They do experience family disadvantages, certainly. But the advantages, these kids always report the advantages significantly outweighing the disadvantages. Thank you for sharing all of that. I think those are all useful myths and misconceptions to correct. And since we're on the subject of things that people tend to get wrong about polyamory. Uh, another one that I wanted to mention is I often hear people say that jealousy doesn't exist in polyamorous relationships. And some people say that people who are polyamorous only experience compersion instead, which you mentioned a little bit earlier, this idea of compersion, which is where you take pleasure in your partner's happiness. And some people describe compersion as being the opposite of jealousy, but I don't think that's necessarily the correct way to frame it. Um, but while compersion certainly exists, it doesn't necessarily mean that people who are poly can't also be jealous. And in fact, I've heard many people say that you can experience both compersion and jealousy at the same time, such that, you know, maybe we need to think about these as being independent emotions rather than polar opposites. So can you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on that and maybe what your work has revealed about compersion and jealousy in polyamorous relationships? I find jealousy just fascinating in terms of polyamorous relationships. Um, over, so I've had four different waves of data collection. And in the first Three, I would say I had maybe six different people, and this is out of roughly 200. So six is not an enormous amount out of 200. But over my whole longitudinal sample, I would say six different people have told me that they never experienced jealousy. And in my fourth wave of data collection, three of those people, at least, I would need to look at my notes, but I know it's at least three came forward to say, oh my God, I experienced jealousy and it was awful. <laughs> I hate it. Oh, I now realize how painful it's been for my partners and I wish I hadn't poo-pooed them so much now that I know what jealousy feels like. Um, and so I have through that experience and kind of collecting data around this, I have come to think of jealousy as 
like in everyone has a certain kind of number of jealousy nodes in a way. And some people have a whole bunch of jealousy nodes and some people hardly have any. And some people's jealousy nodes get set off by all sorts of things. And other people, their jealousy nodes are fairly insensitive and don't experience a lot of activation. And I was led to this idea because in each one of these people who came forward and said, oh my God, now I felt jealousy, each one of them had similar circumstances in that they were less happy with themselves. In one case, one of them had gained a lot of weight and was not used to feeling kind of not only physically heavy, but they felt less attractive than they had in the past. In another case, one had lost their job that had been really kind of defining to them. And even though it was a time when their industry was going through a lot of upheaval and a lot of other people were losing their jobs, it wasn't like they were an awful person and that's why they lost their job. They still you know, it had been an arena where they had been very successful and losing that was very difficult for them. They had always been pretty self-sufficient and now they didn't have any money and had to rely on other people more than they had in the past. A third had had a baby and was not feeling very attractive afterwards and kind of hadn't really been dating very much. So all three of them had something that they weren't feeling great about within themselves. And then simultaneously, they're a favorite partner, not necessarily primary because one of them didn't have primaries, but long-term beloved partner hooked up with someone else, someone new who was, you know, like young and beautiful and athletic and skinny and professionally successful and, you know, all of these things that maybe they even weren't in reality, but they seemed to the person who suddenly wasn't feeling so good about themselves. And now their favorite partner has someone else that they're excited about. So all three of them encountered this kind of perfect storm of feeling a lack in themselves and their other partner's attention going elsewhere. And that created jealousy for the first time for them. I still do have some people in my sample who continue to say that they have never felt jealousy, that they don't experience that emotion. They don't relate to it. And I think it's very possible that they have very few jealousy nodes and may never encounter something that sets them off. Research indicates that jealousy is actually much more common in monogamy than in polyamorous relationships, which surprised me at first, but then the more I thought about it, it makes sense that in monogamy, you're not supposed to find other people attractive. You're not supposed to notice other people. So when you do, your partner gets much more flustered about it than within polyamory. You can talk about it. You can talk about it openly and people can take steps to ameliorate jealousy, either the partner giving, you know, love and affection and reassurance can be a, a good source of helping people deal with jealousy. And the person who's feeling the jealousy can look at that and feel like, okay, this is something I can face and work with instead of demanding, I'm feeling jealous, partner, you need to change something, which is often what happens in monogamy. In polyamory, it's not necessarily... I'm feeling jealous, so everyone comes scream at me about it. It's more, hey, honey, I'm feeling jealous. What can we do about this? I just want you to know. And honey doesn't have to necessarily change their interaction with other people, but can, especially if they are a practice polyamorist in a long-term relationship, can provide their partner with some comforting reassurance, which is generally in polyamory, a pretty positive response to jealousy. Yeah, that's all so interesting and fascinating. And it lines up with some of the things I've seen in my own research on polyamory. A few years ago, some of my colleagues and I got together and we surveyed more than 3,000 people who are in polyamorous relationships or identify as polyamorous. And we asked people a mix of 
open-ended questions and then also gave them standard jealousy scales. And something that stood out to me was that we had some participants who in the open-ended portion, when we asked them to talk about jealousy and what their experience of it is like in their relationship, some people wrote in that, I don't know what jealousy is. That's an emotion I just don't experience. And so it lines up with what you're saying that there are some people who just don't seem to have those jealousy nodes or they're just not activated to the same degree that they are in other people. But we also see that, you know, a lot of people do report feeling and experiencing jealousy. And I think that's so fascinating what you said about how that can actually change over time. And maybe you don't feel jealousy now, but at some point in the future, that emotion might kick in. So it's an area that's worthy of so much study and investigation because it just hasn't really been explored. And I think it challenges this popular idea that I hear repeated often in the media, which is that jealousy doesn't exist in polyamory. And the reality is that it does to some extent, although it varies across persons and the way that they handle and deal with jealousy seems to be quite different than how it works out in monogamous relationships. But I wanted to go back to something you addressed a little earlier in one of the other myths you mentioned about polyamory, which was about polyamorous families and how, you know, the children are doing all right. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you found in polyamorous families in terms of the unique advantages or challenges that they might face? I know you talked about, you know, one advantage being that they might have more social and emotional support from having more parental figures in their life and challenges, you know, stigma being one of them. Are there any other advantages or challenges that have emerged in your work? For some of the kids, those more adults in their lives become disadvantageous. For one thing, it's hard to get away with things in polyamorous families when there are so many adults around who talk to each other. So children who are trying to sneak out of the house and pretend they went somewhere that they didn't go. And then they have to remember to tell exactly the same story to all of the adults because the adults talk to each other. And then if they notice inconsistencies in the child's story, the child is then outed as not really having been where they said they were or you know, not being able to sneak out or just not being able to get away with things. Those children identified as irritating and problematic in their families. I had never thought about that before, but that's a lot more people you have to keep your story straight with. (laughs) I can can see how that could be um, challenging to do. And especially when you're like eight or something and you're really not that sophisticated anyway, and then you're trying to lie to like, four different adults and keep your story straight when they ask you questions and things. It just, some kids found that very bothersome. (laughs) Poor guys. (laughs) Also, listening to multiple adults can be challenging. And this really mirrors, I would say, research in other blended families, where if people are divorced and then they get new parents, sometimes having those new parents tell the kids what to do is uncomfortable and creates a challenge in the family. And kids in polyamorous families sometimes feel that. Although it appears from my research that primary disciplinarians of the children are the biological parents, usually, that the chosen kin or the non-biological parents, the kind of what... um, social parents, that they are more kind of support staff, like they'll help with cooking food and giving rides and help doing homework and things like that. But if the kid comes home with like all Fs or something, that report card tends to go to their biological parents in the family and not the more social parents. So seems like the families try to mitigate that kind of rebellion against discipline by having the primary discipline come from the biological parents. The kids report a lot of relational and emotional sophistication on their own and in terms of establishing adult relationships with their parents that When they move out of the house, for instance, let's say they're going to college and they're living in a dorm room, 
several of the kids mention that they were able to kind of use the skills they had learned growing up in a polyamorous family to reestablish networks of friends and kind of emotional intimacy and support in this new place. And they noticed some of their roommates or suite mates or dorm mates having a really hard time making connections, like being out of their familiar zone with their familiar people was very jarring to some of their peers at college. And in fact, some of these peers left after the first semester and others were able to kind of figure out how to make friends and things like that. But the kids from polyamorous families have all these kind of emotional intimacy skills that they can reestablish support wherever they go. And that's an amazing life skill. That's an important life skill. And they can nurture and sustain that through communicating and, you know, sharing feelings and knowing how to be there for someone else and knowing how to ask for what they want. Yeah. So it sounds like there's some complex family dynamics at work, but that's, you know, there are some unique advantages that children in polyamorous families might experience in terms of their emotional development and maturity and the way that they interact with others and form connections throughout their lives. So thank you for sharing all of that. I wanted to change gears a little bit and talk about another aspect of your work, which is the work that you do as an expert witness. It's something that I do as well. And it's been this really fascinating aspect of my career that I never expected to be doing. Now, for me, most of the cases that I've been involved in center around kink and BDSM in some way. So for example, one case I was involved in a while ago centered around a dispute where one partner reported that they had been sexually assaulted and the other partner reported that they had engaged in consensual BDSM. And so it was a case about, you know, how do you determine sexual consent. And it was complex and fascinating. And so I'm curious to hear more about kind of what types of cases do you tend to be involved in? And what has your experience been like with that? You know, I've also had some BDSM consent cases. Similar to that, I've had BDSM cases around age play slash child molestation or attempted child molestation with people online. I've been getting a lot of those as well. Yeah, You have been. So you know exactly what I'm talking about with like a police that says, you're trying to have sex with a 14-year-old girl. And the person is saying, no, I thought she was a 35-year-old pretending to be a 14-year-old. Yeah. And for people who might not be familiar with age play, it's it's really a form of BDSM where one partner or both partners might pretend to be of a different age. And most often, this seems to be one partner pretending to be younger than they are, usually pretending to be someone who's under the legal age of, of consent. And it's not really about an attraction to a minor. It's about the dominant submissive dynamic, the power differential that exists when partners sort of take on these different sexual roles. So it's really about the eroticization of power rather than pedophilia, which is something that's that's separate and distinct. So just wanted to add that in for people who might not be familiar with it. I would absolutely agree with everything you just said. And it's become, I think, more complex with online interactions that some people, you know, will truly not be trying to get with a child, not be trying to have sex with a child, and are just kind of exploring online, exploring new kinds of sexuality, and assuming that no one is who they say they are online. You know, no one sends actual pictures of themselves. They choose someone who's better looking and younger, you know, than them. Um, So yeah, I would say actually internet entry into BDSM has made things a lot more complicated than they used to be. Because if you were age playing in person with someone, 
you could tell that's a 47-year-old woman dressed up like an eight-year-old. But online, who, you know, who are you interacting with? You don't know. So I do a lot of those cases. And then I do some murder cases. I had a death by breath play. Breath play is either restricting air or blood flow to the brain during sex, often by choking, sometimes by um, a cord around the neck. Um, And that can be really dangerous. I would recommend that if people want to do breath play, that they not do any constriction around the neck, that actually covering the mouth and nose with a hand or something else that you can easily remove is a much safer way to do breath play. A lot of people will have these veins in their neck that even once the compression is stopped, those veins might not pop back up and refill quickly. So the oxygen deprivation can go much further than people had intended. And generally those cases revolve around was this murder or was this an accident? And also if people want to do breath play, having a clear agreement beforehand, even a videoed agreement where the person is clearly saying, yes, I want to do this. I'm doing this consensually is a great backup just in case something goes wrong. But also don't compress the neck. Be ready to release compression in breath play quickly because it can be fatal. And people, that seems to be the most common accidental death by kinky sex, at least the one that I encounter is death by breath play. That's so interesting. I've not yet been involved in any murder cases, but I've certainly heard about similar cases like that before. And, you know, for those of you who are listening to this, um, it's really interesting how often BDSM related issues appear in legal cases. And there aren't a lot of experts in this area. So people like Elizabeth and I often get called to participate in these cases to help educate judges and juries about BDSM, what it is and isn't, and when things cross a line and how we determine consent. And so it's, you know, for me, it's been this really fascinating offshoot of my career. Like I said, never expected to get into it. Yeah. All I can say is that it's just such, such interesting work. So expert witnessing work I do is custody cases for polyamorous families. And some kinky families, too, actually. Some people who practice, parents who practice BDSM. And those generally tend to be around disentangling parental sexuality from child rearing, which many judges and juries have also had a hard time with in the past with gay parenting. And generally, they're... What I'm saying is if parents are not having sex with or in front of their children, then the parental sexuality is moot. It is not at all related. If the children are not involved in it and don't have to witness it, then if it happens behind closed doors, it's not really interacting with the children. And in my data, polyamorous parents, much like other parents... (laughs) have sex behind closed doors. They are not having sex in front of their children. They are not having sex with their children, just like most gay and lesbian parents don't. So it's clearly jury and judicial prejudice, the assumption that the polyamorous family is malfunctioning, much more so than any actual evidence of malfunction. Yeah, I've also heard about cases like that as well. And and also in, you know, child custody proceedings where one partner holds the other partner's kinky sexual interests against them and and use that to, to paint them in a negative light in the hope that that increases the odds of a favorable outcome for them in that hearing. And there's an organization called the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom that documents a lot of these 
types of cases that tend to occur where people's sexuality is held against them in some way. And so if you want to learn more about that or find resources, if, for example, that's an issue that you're experiencing or dealing with, the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom is a great resource for finding out more and for getting help in terms of navigating that. Now, we're just about out of time, but there's one other area I wanted to take the conversation, which is to discuss this app that you've been working on called The Bonding Project, which is designed to help people figure out what relationship style is best for them. So can you tell us a little bit about the app and how it works? I'm so excited about it. This is our beta version that's out right now, and it tests on whether people seem to be most interested in one-to-one, one-to-many, many-to-many, or solo bonding with the awareness that people can be interested in more than one style. So it tests how comfortable, curious, cautious, or challenged people are in each of those relationship styles. So it actually offers a fairly fine-grained sophisticated approach. It's not just, you know, answer these eight questions and we tell you you're purple or something. It's pretty, pretty in depth. You know, we're getting a lot of feedback on it that people are really enjoying it. It only takes about 10 minutes to take. And yeah, people are saying that their results are pretty accurate for them. Now, you mentioned in terms of the relationship styles, solo bonding. For people who might not be familiar with what that term means, can you define it for us? Solo bonders generally prefer to maintain their independence rather than kind of identifying with a relationship as much. So not that they don't have relationships. Some of them have long-term loving, committed relationships, but they don't necessarily organize their life around, I'm this person's wife, and that's my primary identity, and that kind of shapes everything I do. So some solo bonders identify as relationship anarchists. Others would identify as solo polyamorists. And some are single. Some feel like you know, they may or may not want to have sex at all. And if even if they do want to have sex, they don't necessarily want that person around them all the time kind of moving in. They just prefer to be single. And some of them prefer not to have sex at all. Some of them like sex when they feel like it, but don't want to kind of be in a relationship that assumes they'll always be there. Do you have anything to add to solo bonding? I'm not sure if that was a... No, no, that was a great, I I think, breakdown of it. I just know it's a term that I think a lot of people aren't super familiar with, just like a lot of the lingo and consensual non-monogamy and polyamory is new to many people. But so basically the app, you complete a series of questions and it kind of tells you where you fall on these dimensions and helps you to figure out what type of relationship style might work best for you? Does it also provide anything in the way of resources to help people who might be trying to navigate a new style of relationship for themselves for the very first time? Absolutely. Um, We already provide all sorts of like links and interesting things and a newsletter for people who've taken it. I think it's only going out once a week with maybe a few interesting articles. It's not something, you know, extensive or whatever, intrusive. Also, once we or we can figure out the back end. The whole computer back end is so much more complicated than I realized. On My role on the team has been helping to shape the questionnaires and kind of doing the scientific research on the front end that kind of figures out what, what questions should we be asking. For that, I looked at a lot of relationship satisfaction research to see people who are happy in non-monogamy, what kind of qualities do they have? People who prefer monogamy, what kind of qualities do they have? Things like that. So I really have nothing to do with the computer intricacies. But once we figure that out, 
will be also offering kind of a comparative thing where everyone within a polycule can take it and then compare their results and see, oh, this polycule is really strong in this way, but might face some challenges here because people have pretty differing results on sharing resources or something. That sounds great. So where can people go if they want to take the test? It's at bondingproject.com, B-O-N-D-I-N-G. P-R-O-J-E-C-T dot com. All right. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for this wonderful conversation more broadly. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please also tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about your work and if they want to get their hands on a copy of one of your books? Oh, thanks for mentioning the books. I had completely forgotten that. I just came out last year, 2020, with a very brief book on children in polyamorous families that is the precursor to the much heavier research book that will be coming out probably 2022. Um, So if people want information on that or my other books, they can find my website at elizabethchef.com, E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H-S-H-E-F, f.com. They can also find my findings broken up into little bite-sized chunks on Psychology Today. I blog under the title of my first book, The Polyamorists Next Door. I actually have a copy of your book, The Polyamorous Next Door, sitting on my bookshelf right behind me. And it's something that I reference frequently because, you know, there really isn't anything else out there on polyamorous families and relationships. So, you know, thank you for doing that work and creating these handy resources that are accessible, not just to scientists and researchers, but to the public as well. So thanks for your work in that area. And thank you again for being here and spending a part of your day with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you as well to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of the podcast. You can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, to learn more about the science of sexual desire and fantasy. Thank you again for listening. Until next time.